Good morning, guys. Man, really good time with that worship, huh? It was great. Thank you, guys. You guys did awesome. Oh, man, I'm so happy to have you guys with us this Sunday. I'm so happy just to be here, I mean, and be able to, uh, man, to celebrate Easter with you guys. It's, it's quite possibly the most exciting day uh, for anyone who has faith, but you know what? Also, just aside from that, there's these moments in, in, in time they kind of have a way of, of, of affecting everything after it. Sometimes they refer to them as, as they call them watershed moments. They refer to them as, they're a moment in time that happens, and when it happens, it's not just that it's, it's a big event. But see, like a watershed moment is one that once it happens, it changes how stuff happens after that forever. People look back at it and they say, like, my whole perspective was changed because of that, that one moment that happened. There's moments that have happened throughout history that have been, been like this, um, a, a number of them, but probably actually some that we could consider in our own lifetime um, that some of you guys have maybe seen, depending on how old you are. I mean, if you go back to um, maybe some people who are, who are a little older in our crowd, surely the dropping of two atomic bombs was a watershed moment in the world. After that moment, the interpretation of what war and everything could look like was completely changed, wasn't it? I mean, some of you who are older who even probably lived through that, that was a moment where it was like, whoa, everything stopped and changed from then on. Uh, in, our, in the people who are younger in this area, uh, surely 9-11 is a watershed moment. When that happened in our country, not just even in our country, but around the world, everyone kind of stopped and went, whoa. That kind of changes how we look at everything from here on out. There's these moments that happen in history. Sometimes maybe even they can be small things. Maybe things that in the beginning, maybe they don't even look that big. But when you look at them in the scope later on, you realize this was huge. Perhaps a good indication of that would say be the genesis of the internet. Maybe when it started, people kind of laughed at it. But now looking at it, realizing that was a watershed moment in history, isn't it? It changes everything, how we even use this world nowadays with the incorporation of the internet. But this morning, I want to share with you the most prevalent watershed moment in all of history, Um, one that completely shakes everything to its core and changes everything. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, so let's take a a step back from that, because the story, it really begins with, with one man, and it's this man who is named Jesus Christ. And now, right now, I'm going to take a step back, because probably I have some people in this audience who, as soon as I say Jesus Christ... He, in, in your mind, he seems more like a fairy tale, doesn't he? Because maybe when you were a kid, you went to like Sunday school or you went to some sort of class that taught you about it and how you learned about Jesus Christ was say like this cartoon picture on the wall and like here's Jesus and here we like walk him down this path and here, here he heals the leper and like it was kind of like a, a fairy tale to you guys. And I think a lot of people who maybe are in the church, they, they think of it like that, right? Jesus is this fairy tale, this great story that maybe I've heard once and and it can be like that, but we got to take a step back and realize that Jesus was a real man, a real person, not just a story. We have, we have proof of this from tons of different resources, a number of which are actually outside of the Christian faith. There's this uh, great historian, Josephus. You guys have probably heard about him if you've done ancient study. And what's interesting enough is, is Josephus, in his book Antiquities, he wrote, Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over him 
both many of Jews and many Gentiles. He was the Christ. A man who was outside of the Christian faith still wrote about this man because it was earth-shaking. This guy named Jesus, he really did come here to earth. We have a tremendous source of knowledge, though, inside of the Bible as well. And this is perhaps um, the greatest source that we can look to. We have four accounts from four different people about one man's story, Jesus Christ. And then a whole other part in the New Testament here of, 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 of all of the, the books of people who are talking about the, the, the fallout from this man, Jesus Christ. And interestingly enough, if you, if you look at the, the, the New Testament, it's actually one of the most rock-solid ancient history books ever written. They do this through a thing called contextual criticism where they, they find different copies and how long before the event was it written and then how many copies were written shortly after. And the New Testament stands well and above every other ancient work. Crazy reliable, which is amazing because some of us think, is it just this book? But really, as a history book, it's probably one of the most legitimate history books of that time period ever created. It's amazing. But these people wrote accounts of of what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. And that's really one of the the biggest ways that we we, we learn about him is through these stories. In all seriousness, no wise, realistic scholar would probably argue the fact of whether or not Jesus existed on earth. They'd have to be pretty foolish or really, really, I mean, really, really basically stepping out in faith to say that. Because the great majority, this gigantic, immense quantity of facts stand against them to say that this man, Jesus, really did exist. Just as much as any of these other ancient people that are written about in history that we so surely believe existed, there's just as much, if not more, about Jesus. So really any historian to say whether or not Jesus existed, you would have to find someone who's basically taking taking a big leap of faith to say that Jesus didn't exist. Most all would agree that he did. But what they might argue with and disagree with is is what comes next. Because, see, while Jesus was here, while he taught about things like like generosity, patience, kindness, goodness, these beautiful things that we know Jesus to be about, he also made a claim that really, really ruffled the feathers of the people around him. Jesus claimed that he was God. While he was here on earth, this man, he claimed that he was also God. Now that was a pretty hard one to swallow. We know this, though, because when we look in the scriptures, these eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ, these other people talking about him, they make it really clear by what they say about it. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me this morning, or I'm going to go ahead and read these verses to you that I want to reference. Either way. But in John 14, 6 through 11, there's this verse that says this. Jesus, he's talking here, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who the Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. But Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives and does his work through me. 
Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you see me do. Man, teachers and prophets of this day, great men who are alongside Jesus, they taught many people, but they would never say something like this. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. He's in me, I'm in him. He speaks through me. He's not pointing to God, he's pointing to himself and saying, I'm the way to the Father. If you want to meet God the Father, the way you meet him is by coming through me. That's a pretty huge claim, isn't it? That's not just the claim of a man. But also we see this by his, by his actions too. In, in Mark 2, um, there's this really interesting uh, story. And Jesus, man, he traveled all around this area uh, over in the Middle East. But it says, after a few days, Jesus returned to a place called Capernaum. You don't have to remember that. But word got around that he was back at home. And a crowd gathered, jamming the entrances so that no one could get in or out. He was teaching the word. They brought a paraplegic to him, carried by four men. When they weren't able to get into, the, get into the house because of the crowd, they removed part of the roof of the house and lowered the paraplegic on his stretcher. Impressed by their bold belief, Jesus said to the paraplegic, Son, I forgive your sins. And some religious scholars sitting there started whispering among themselves, He can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. But Jesus knew right away what they were thinking. And he said, Why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler, to say this paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or to say, get up, take your stretcher, and start walking? Jesus says this, well, just so it's clear that I am the Son of Man and authorized to do either or both, he looked now at the paraplegic and he said, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And the man did it. He got up, grabbed his stretcher, and walked out with everyone there watching him. They rubbed their eyes, incredulous, and, and praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Man, by what Jesus did, it's not just the actions of a man, isn't it? He forgave this guy's sins, said, I forgive your sins, and he knew people would immediately be on his back, being like, well, only God can do that. You can't say that. And he said, obviously, he says, I'm the son of man. He says, I can tell him that his sins are forgiven, and not only that, too, but I can tell him that he doesn't even have to lay on the stretcher anymore. He can get up and walk. It was a pretty hardcore claim that Jesus made there, right? But you know what? Even if you say those things, well, maybe it was just this, and maybe we're getting confused. Here's a really good one for you. In Mark 14, this is when, when Jesus gets arrested, and he's going to get put on trial for basically like blasphemy. In Mark 14, 61, this is what happens. And this one kind of takes away all possibility. The people who are interrogating him, they say this. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The Messiah is God returned to take and bring the people back into a right relationship with him. There's no question whether or not what they're saying. And Jesus says, I am. He says, I am. He's asked point blank, Are you saying that you are the Messiah? You are God come down to earth to save his people? And his response is, I am. No question, no question when you look at those verses and you tie them together that what Jesus was saying is that he was God. Now that could be kind of hard to, to understand, right? And I think that was the same thing that happened back then. Maybe the same thing that's happening in your mind now. The story continues on. And, uh, and if maybe some of you guys know it. Maybe some of you guys don't though too because I'm not going to take any, uh, you know, anything for granted here. 
But as the story unfolds, man, you know, Jesus continues. He moves around. He, he heals people. He preaches these great, amazing uh, sermons. If you guys, if, if you ever just want to hear some of the most amazing teaching in the world, man, open up and, and read the teaching of Jesus Christ. People who aren't even Christians agree that the kind of teaching that's in there is just revolutionary and mind-blowing. Stuff like loving your enemies. Man, exchanging love for hate. There's stuff that's just amazing inside of there. These things that Jesus taught is almost as if they, they were coming from God. Right? Almost beyond this world. But as the story unfolds, he continues to preach, he continues to teach, he continues to heal, and Jesus is finally betrayed by one of his own 12 disciples named Judas. He basically rats him out for uh, a prize, a sum of money, and Jesus is taken and brought before the, the, the leaders, the judges of that day. He's tried for blasphemy. He's, he's flogged and beaten. And, and then they basically, he's, Pontius Pilate was trying to let him go, but the people would not have it. They wanted him crucified and killed. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Now, I, I don't want to belabor a subject just to, um, just to try to, to, to get you. But if, if you've never actually read about what crucifixion is, it will blow your mind. When you actually read about the medical um, interpretation of what crucifixion is, it's absolutely frightening. It's scary. Jesus was beat uh, more than any man can almost handle, basically to the point that most people would die in his current situation. And then he was forced to carry, uh, basically, part of the cross. Most historians don't actually believe that he carried a full cross, but that he carried the uh, horizontal piece on his back up to the place where the cross rests. And when he was got there in crucifixion, they drive stakes through this part right here of your hand where these, these two bones are. People think that it was your palm, but this is actually considered part of your hand. If you do research on even how Jesus talks, this is considered part of your hand in the culture. And it's driven between these two bones so that the bones maintain your, your, your hold on the cross. And basically those nails rust right against the main nerve that runs through your arm. And your feet are then taken and, and sat on top of each other, and a, a nail is driven right through the top of both your feet into this, and then you're raised up to hang by those three points, piercing both your wrists and your feet. And what's crazy is you're, you're left there to hang and, and to die from I- intense pain, amazing pain, but then also the, the, the pain of hanging creates such knots in your muscles that then your muscles begin to actually contract and pull and increase the pain on your hands and legs because of the way that your muscles tighten up because of the sheer pain and anguish of hanging for so long. What's really terrible is that because of hanging by your wrists at that angle and slouching down, the way the human body is designed is that when when you pull up in a certain way like this, it actually begins to constrict the lungs. And people who were on the cross often didn't die of blood loss, but what they died of is asphyxiation. You can breathe in, but you can't breathe out because of the way your chest is compressed. So you can draw breath in, but then you can't release it unless you pull on the nails through your wrists to be able to exhale and then drop again to breathe again. And Jesus hung on this cross and suffered in pain for hours. It is perhaps the most gruesome and terrifying death you could ever imagine. When you actually read it, it's just shocking to think of the amount of of pain. I can't possibly imagine Um, the amount of pain that Jesus Christ suffered through. Uh, A crazy death. Um, 
We know then that, uh, that Jesus really did die on this cross. Uh, after they found that he was dead, they actually pierced his side with a, uh, with a spear, went up into his heart, and it says that a flow of blood and water came out. And that's actually something they didn't even know back at the time, but it's actually where the sack around your heart fills with water during uh, basically heart failure. And it was basically pushing in on his heart, and he was suffering from heart failure at the same time. That flow of blood and water that you might have heard, uh, sometimes in even hymns they talk about that. That's a surefire sign that he was actually suffering heart failure from all the stress that he was under. And Jesus died on this cross. He says he was taken down, and instead of just discarded because Jesus was a poor man, he was only a carpenter, there just so happened that there was this man coming through named Joseph of Arimathea, and he had uh, a really, really, really nice tomb. He was a rich man. He took Jesus and he put him in this tomb, and he sealed it with this gigantic heavy rock to take and close his body off. So now what? You know, we know from the story in Matthew twenty six fifty six when he was betrayed, it says, then all the disciples deserted him. When he was arrested, the people who were his followers, they ran because they were scared. I imagine that the men who spent so much time with Jesus spent the next couple of days very, very lost and confused. This man who come and said that he was the Messiah is now dead and buried in a tomb. Now, what next? What was this all about? Was he just the, was he just a good man? Was he just a good teacher? Because I thought that he was something more. C.S. Lewis he makes this really really great point about Jesus when people start talking about that maybe Jesus was just a really good man, and he came and he died. He makes this really awesome point. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that up to us. He didn't intend to. He says the words that Jesus said, if he was just a great moral teacher, he wouldn't be. He'd be evil because he claimed he was God. If he wasn't, then the teachings that he gave were evil in nature. Either that or he was completely insane and he really did believe it, but it wasn't true. I'm sure that the disciples had the same sort of thing running through their mind in these next days thinking, man, what was this guy telling us? You know, what, what was this all coming down to? But this is where I think the story really gets good. And this is where I want you to refocus back in with me on the focus of what I started with. And it starts in Matthew 28. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's the very beginning of this chapter, and I want to read it to you. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. It says this, Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the, and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell dead and faint. The actual authorities had actually posted guards all around Jesus' tomb for fear that someone would come and steal his body and claim that he had come back to life. Then the angel spoke to the women, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified, but he isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was laying. And now go quickly and tell the disciples that he has been risen from the dead. 
and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. As they went, Jesus met them and greeted him, and they ran up to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. And Jesus said to him, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Man. This part just, it blows my mind. This is like, this is the watershed moment. They come back to this temple thinking that it's going to be sealed. And if you read some of the other things, they actually say, like, who's going to move the stone for us so we can go in and we can, they were going to anoint Jesus' body with some, with some fragrances. And they come and the stone is gone. And Jesus, Jesus meets them on the road. Now, they, these women, they run back and they tell the disciples. And just like any of us might be today, the disciples are very, very skeptical. Really? You saw Jesus? You sure? I'm not trying to be arrogant, but at, that, at this time, for women to bring that news would actually be, they would probably distrust them because in this area, women were considered not as smart as men, so they might have thought, you know, maybe these women didn't know what they were talking about. But these guys say, you know, are you sure? Man, they, they weren't 100% at all. But Luke 24, 36, it says this. Basically, they're all standing around and they're talking about this. Do you think this is real? Do you think this really happened? And it says, while they were saying all this, Jesus appeared to them and said, peace be with you. And they thought they were seeing a ghost and were scared half to death. He continued with them, don't be upset and don't let all these doubting questions take over. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me over from head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. As he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. They still had the marks from the crucifixion. They still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was too much. It seemed too good to be true. And he asked, do you have any food? And they gave him a piece of leftover fish that they had cooked. And he took it and ate it right before their eyes. Then he said, everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms have to be fulfilled. Jesus comes back, and he comes back in a real body. People will argue and say, well, you know, Jesus come back. Maybe he's just a spirit. He says, I'm not, a, I'm not a ghost. He says, feel it. He says, I got muscle and bone. He says, you can still see the nail marks from, my, from, from the crucifixion. It's the same body. And he says, you know what? Not only that, but he says, I'm hungry. Do you have any fish? Right? Jesus really came back to life. He wasn't just a spirit. Spirits aren't going to come back. You think a ghost is going to take time to stop and eat a piece of fish? I don't think so. He come back as a real man. He said, it's really me, back from the dead. Three different occasions before this time, Jesus had predicted this. And this moment where he, he says to him, don't you realize everything I had said has to come true? I like to think that at this time, kind of like a, a rewind in their head, these disciples went back and replayed these moments in their head. And they realized, oh yeah, you talked about this, didn't you? I think they were so worried about everything else, they hadn't even remembered these words of Jesus. But he says, I told you all this had to happen. And I like to think that in their mind, they had this flashback to these moments in which Jesus was speaking to them. One of which, uh, Matthew 20, is, is this, this great one. It says, Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem with the twelve. And he stopped alongside the road and he said, listen to me carefully. We're on our way to Jerusalem. When we get there, the Son of Man, which is what he called himself, 
will be betrayed to the religious leaders and scholars. They will sentence him to death. They will then hand him over to the Romans for mockery and torture and crucifixion. On the third day, he will be raised up alive. Jesus told him this is going to happen before it even did. Days, a week before it happened, he was already telling them, I know all of this is going to happen, and it has to. But they had forgot about those words that Jesus had said. They weren't paying attention. At this moment, I believe, is the watershed moment. This is the moment in which everything made sense. Just as in the disciples' minds where they went, oh my God, you're right, you said this was going to happen, and it did. The same thing happened in all of history, because here's the deal. When Jesus Christ came back from the dead, it not only proved these words that he said were true, where he already claimed the fact that he was going to die and come back, it not only just said, oh yeah, you did predict that, right? But what it did is it proved every single word of his teaching back to the very first sentence he said. See, before that, it could have all been just put off as the teaching of a man. Before that, it could have all just been put off as an idea or a thought or something to be, you know, like patronized. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. But see, when Jesus came back, it proved that he really was God. And every single word that he said was proven to be rock solid and true. All of it to the very beginning. At this moment, people realized that this was God, encased in man, sent to earth, defeating death and coming back to life. We flash back to Jesus' words that I started with this in John 14, in which Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And at the time, maybe that was a hard thing to understand, but standing on the other side of resurrection in which Jesus had defeated death, those words now have a striking reality, don't they? He is God. He is the way to the Father. He is the one truth. He is the only true life. All of those words, this changes everything. It changes everything. For the disciples, it surely did. There's Thomas amongst the disciples, and everyone knows doubting Thomas, right? He was quoted with that, and I feel so bad for that man because he just, he just wanted a little more proof. He wasn't that bad of a guy. Thomas wasn't that bad, but in John 20, there's the story of where Thomas uh, actually meets him. And the disciples had already seen him, but Thomas wasn't with him, and they said, we saw him, and he says, not until I see him. Not until I see him will I believe him. He says, eight days later, the disciples were again in the room. And this time Thomas was with him. Jesus came through the locked door, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he focused his attention on Thomas. And he says, Take your finger and examine my hands. Take your hand and stick it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas said these words, which I think are just so perfect. He says, My master and my God. At that moment where he realized that this really was Jesus, came back from the dead, he realized that he was no longer just a man, but he says, my master, which could be his rabbi or his leader, but he says, not just that, he says, my God. He realized this was God standing before him. It changes everything. Jesus spent the next 40 days on earth after this. He appeared at least 11 times, one time to over 500 people in a meeting, which is let 
known to us later uh, in, in Corinthians. Then he went back to heaven, where he said he would wait the day when he come back to judge all those who live on earth. This moment changed history forever. No other, no other religion has a story like this. No other prophet leader of a religion ever came back from death. For, for Jewish people, hundreds if not thousands of people go to Abraham's tomb every single year and stand and honor it. For Buddhist people, thousands of people go back to Buddha's grave and honor it every year. For Muslim people, literally hundreds of thousands, millions of people, they travel back to his grave of, of, of Muhammad and they, they honor it. But if you notice all the people who are Christians, there's no grave to go back to in honor. This prophet leader of a religion that has, has far and away done just as much as any of these other three, there is no grave to go back to in honor because Jesus came back from the dead and that grave was long forgotten. No other religion has a story like this. It was proof positive that Jesus was who he said he was in entirety, a man that had God inside of him. It changes everything. It went back all the way to the beginning and it proved Jesus' teachings because Jesus taught things like this. All of us have sin. Every one of us. And there's no way that we can correct our relationship with God except through me. See, all of us, all of us have fallen short of what God's standard is because God's standard is perfection. Perfection. And none of us can reach that. And it says in the Bible that the payment for our sin, which all of us have sinned, that sin is death. And it says the only way that that can be taken away is by somebody's death. The only one who can reach perfection would be God himself. So God sent Jesus down to earth, God encased in man, to live a perfect life and die on that cross to pay for your and my sins forever. All we have to do is believe in that sacrificial death for ourselves. Make him the Lord of our lives. And it says that when we die, we go to be with God and then we get to resurrect just as Jesus did to a second life in the future, right back here where we are. It's an amazing story. It changes everything. I wonder if you're in the same place that Thomas was, wondering, could this really be true? Not that you couldn't say that it couldn't happen, but you're just wondering. And maybe this morning, this is what you needed, was an explanation. And maybe you're, you're coming right up to that point. Just to reiterate that story, when the resurrection happened, it was what changed everything, proving that God is who he says he was, that Jesus was fully God, and that the only way to heaven is through that amazing sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and to put our faith in it. This morning, I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond. And what I'd like you guys to do is go ahead and close your eyes and go ahead and bow your head. And this is more so for the people around you because we want to give them honor if they need to respond, okay? If it's not you, that's fine, but give the person next to you the honor that they deserve. If this morning you say, I'm in the same place Thomas is, and maybe I've never done it before, I've done it before, but today I need Jesus Christ to cover my sins and take them away. Just take, raise up your head, raise up your hand, and look at me and meet eyes with me right now.
Okay. You guys who met asked me, you go ahead and you can bow your heads again and go ahead and close your eyes. What I want us to do is I want us together, and if that's your heart today, that you, this is for your very first time, or maybe you've done this before, but you want to join in with them, you don't have to say this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us just in a quick prayer. And it's just a prayer of surrender to Jesus and committing our lives to him. And for you guys who just looked at me, as you say this, this is what's going to start a brand new relationship with you with Jesus, okay? Go ahead and follow me saying this. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are God, that you came to earth and died on the cross to pay for my sins. Jesus, take away my sin. I make you the Lord of my life. You are my God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For you guys who just said that for your very first time, maybe said it again, you guys connected eyes with me and you started that. This morning, what a, a, an old school term, but a very, very real term that they call is salvation. And what it means is that your eternity has just been changed from one of, of sin being paid by your own life to that of your sin being paid by Jesus Christ and that you no longer have to carry it. I want to congratulate you guys because it's the biggest step in the world you can take in your life. It's the most amazing step. And what comes next is perhaps the most amazing life you could ever live here on earth. It'll reshape everything, the whole way you live, and God's going to give you amazing things. What I encourage you guys to do is you guys who said that for the first time, I would love if you would stop and talk to Deborah. Have a quick conversation with us just so we could encourage you, pray with you. If you guys said that for the first time, I'd also love to encourage you. If you go right back there, we have Bibles completely for free. I would love for you to grab a Bible and start reading like Luke. Start reading a section about Jesus and fall more in love with this amazing God that paid for all of our sins. I thank you guys so much for being here. I appreciate everyone coming out here. I pray that you guys have an amazingly blessed Easter. I pray to you that, uh, I, I pray that you guys go out, and I pray that this next week is an amazing one for you. Thank you guys so much for being here. You are always welcome back at Acts Church. I'd love to invite you to come back because this is a continued series for the next three weeks. If you want to come join us, I'm going to continue to talk about how this resurrection changes everything about this world. It changes everything about our faith. It changes everything about all of us. And I'd love to encourage you guys, come back next week, come back in the following weeks as I more unpack this picture of when Jesus came back, how it shook earth to its very foundations. Love to have you guys here. Thank you so much for coming.